Hi, I'm Kay Ray, and this is episode 9 of Kay Ray Reads to You. Chapter 8 of The Saturdays by Elizabeth Enright. Saturday 8. School was over. The school books were dumped on the office table for the last time. By and by, somebody would stuff them into the already overcrowded bookcase, and no one would look at them except by accident, years later. There would be Randy's French grammar, all scrawled with drawings of sorceresses, and a question in her handwriting on the flyleaf that said, Nancy Curtin est nuts, n'est-ce pas? And a reply written by her friend Dorothy Janeway that said, Et comment? There would be Mona's English history, with the name Mona Melendy written in nine different handwritings, all her own. She couldn't decide which would look most distinguished as an autograph. There would be Russia's algebra, full of business-like notations and diagrams of airplanes, Curtis P-40s, and Hudson bombers. "'The day school is out is my favorite day next to my birthday,' said Randy." "'My favourite day is going to be next Saturday,' said Rush, "'for when Father had agreed to accept Mrs. Oliphant's wonderful invitation, "'Randy had said, "'Please, can we leave on a Saturday?' "'They had all felt that it was very important to the ISAAC "'for them to leave on a Saturday. "'So it had been arranged, "'and now Saturday was only two days away. All over the house, suitcases gaped open hungrily, and two ancient trunks were slowly being fed, bit by bit. Delicious morsels, such as Oliver's overalls, Mona's party dress, assorted bathing suits, six pairs of sneakers, Beethoven's sonatas, the milk of magnesia, the iodine, three rolls of adhesive tape, litters of socks, and scores of other things. The trunks had been in the family for years and years, and were encrusted with labels from far places. "'Hotel de Russie, Rome,' read Randy, pausing with an armful of pyjamas. "'Mussolini,' said Cuffy, coming out of the steamer trunk with a red face. "'Hotel Savoy, London,' read Randy. "'Bombs,' said Cuffy sadly. "'Blackouts.' "'Hotel Adlon, Berlin,' read Randy. "'That Hitler,' said Cuffy indignantly, and dived back into the trunk. "'Them Nazis!' Randy stopped reading labels. "'What was it like when the world was peaceful, Cuffy?' "'Ah,' said Cuffy, coming up again. "'It seemed like a lovely world, anyway on top where it showed. "'But it didn't last long. First there was a long, bad war, and then peace like the ham in a sandwich, "'and now a long, bad war again. "'It was nice when you could go any place.' "'on boats and trains to foreign cities. "'I went with your mother and father when Mona was a baby. "'I guess I wheeled Mona's baby buggy "'through most of the parks in Europe. "'They call them gardens over there. "'Borghese Gardens, Luxembourg Gardens, Kensington Gardens. "'Real pretty they was, all of them, "'and nice little children, too, "'even if they couldn't talk American. "'Let's see now, what did I do? "'Run upstairs, Randy, "'and see if Oliver's rubber boots are in his closet.' A thumping and banging was heard, and Oliver entered, dragging his tricycle and the old rocking-horse behind him. "'Cuffy, will you please put these in the trunk?' said Oliver. And Randy fled, as the storm-clouds gathered. At last it was Saturday. The expressmen, smelling of crates, and wearing caps on the backs of their heads and pencils behind their ears, had taken away the trunks. 
the taxi-drivers and father and Willie Sloper and Rush took the rest of the luggage down to the two waiting taxis. It was interesting luggage. Besides a rare accumulation of elderly suitcases and hat-boxes, there were several cardboard boxes, a duffel-bag, a tricycle—Oliver had won out on that, but lost on the rocking-horse— two umbrellas and a walking-stick bound together, some steamer-rugs, and the special suitcase with a window that contained the melancholy Isaac. "'All you folks need is a baby-buggy and a bird-cage,' Willie Sloper said. He stood sadly waving after them. The two taxis, bulging with children and luggage, soon drew up at the station. Father, Mona, and Oliver burst out of one. Cuffy, Randy, and Rush burst out of the other— "'Rush carrying Isaac's suitcase carefully. "'They made quite a procession across the station. "'On the train they got seats in the day-coach. "'It smelled of soot and oranges and plush and babies. "'For, of course, there was a baby. "'Just like Miss Pearl said,' Mona thought, "'and he was tuning up for a good cry. "'Father kissed them all good-bye, "'distributed chocolate bars among them, "'and promised to join them the next day.' Out on the platform, a voice suddenly bellowed something that sounded like, "'Aw, baw!' And a few seconds later the train quivered, drew itself together, and stepped out upon its track. Oliver got chocolate all over the window-pane, trying to get a last glimpse of father, and Cuffy mopped her hot face with her best handkerchief. Mona started reading her book almost at once, so that the other passengers would realize that travel was nothing new to her but Randy stared out the window, frankly interested. As for Rush, he surreptitiously opened the suitcase beside him and gave Isaac a piece of chocolate, just to prove that they were still friends. The conductor was a nice man. "'Hot enough for you?' he asked them, as he punched the tickets. "'We won't be hot very long,' Oliver told him. "'We're going to live in a lighthouse.' "'Sunny, next to an iceberg, I can't think of any place I'd rather live just now.' "'Why do conductors always look like that, I wonder?' Mona said to Rush when he'd gone. "'Conductors all have the same face, two lines going down their cheeks, pointed noses, and glasses. They are never very fat. They're usually quite kind.' "'Maybe for the same reason that all policemen have the same kind of face,' Rush said, "'wide and pink, like a baked ham.' After a while the train plunged into the country, real country, with great dignified trees in full leaf like the trees in paintings by old masters, and rambler roses pouring thick as lava over walls and fences. When the train stopped at stations the Melendies saw brown-skinned children piling out of station wagons or running along the platform to meet somebody. "'I can't wait! I can't wait!' cried Randy. "'It'll be soon now,' Cuffy told her calmly." "'Just hold your horses.' The day-coach was oven-hot. Particles of soot crept under the closed windows, and stuck to clothes and damp skin. The baby was going full blast, and now and then Isaac uttered a high-pitched yelp of sympathy. An hour went by, and the country began to change. There were fewer trees now, and the train crossed a bridge across a long, still strip of water, where empty dories and little snub-nosed launches lay motionless, like the cast-off slippers of a giantess. "'Kettle neck!' bawled the conductor suddenly, and the Melendy children sat up and took notice, 
because they knew that Kettleneck was where they got off. Cuffy bustled about, sorting out belongings and scrubbing at soot and chocolate on faces with a damp handkerchief. "'There's Mrs. Oliphant,' she said as the train slowed down. "'She's there waiting for us. Randy, pull your hat forward. Oliver, remember to shake hands with your right hand.' When they got off the train, the air was almost cool, and it smelled of clams. "'Queek, queek!' mewed a seagull high overhead. Mrs. Oliphant was very glad to see them. She wore a suit made out of pongee, a hat with a green veil, an amethyst necklace, a lapis lazuli necklace, and a silver one with her eyeglasses on it. She seemed unperturbed by the amount of luggage that appeared with the Melendies. "'Come, children,' she said. "'Somehow we must get this all into the motor.' That was what she always called it, the motor, with a capital M. The station agent, a man named Mr. Bassett, helped them with the luggage. When Rush saw the motor, he almost dropped everything he was carrying. It was an ancient station wagon, which sat very high and narrow on its wheels. The original windows, broken long ago, had been replaced by regular four-pane windows, like those you see in sheds. Rush thought the motor looked more like a travelling greenhouse than a station wagon. Fifteen years I've had it,' Mrs. Oliphant told them proudly. "'Climb in, children. Cuffy, you and Oliver sit in front with me.' Rush took Isaac out of his bag and held him on his lap. Mrs. Oliphant turned on the ignition, and off they went. She drove like a queen, sitting very straight, glancing graciously from left to right, and travelling all the while at the perilous speed of eleven miles an hour. The motor coughed and thumped, and the exhaust filled the car with horrible fumes. "'Worse than coal-gas,' Mona whispered. After fifteen minutes of it they all felt slightly nauseated, but only slightly. The motor turned from the main road through a little wood, took another turn between two gate-posts, struggled up a small rise, and emerged at the summit with its last gasp. "'Gee whiz!' exclaimed Randy, and Rush just gave a long, low whistle. It was hard to imagine anything better. The lighthouse had once been an honest-to-goodness lighthouse, no doubt about that. It was round and stout and tall, with a wide red band around its middle. The small house at its base had been added to many times, so that it was now ample and rambling. Beyond it a narrow, brilliant garden descended to smooth, elephant-coloured bands of rock. Beyond the rock was the sea, clear as blue glass, and dotted with small rocky islands, like islands painted on a Chinese screen. A pier extended from the nearest rocks, and at its end lay tethered a cat-boat and a dinghy. There were some wind-twisted pines in the garden, and from the branches of one hung a swing. On the low roof of the house a yellow cat lay fast asleep, and on the lawn a great dane posed like an iron dog. The place had everything. "'What's the dog's name, Mrs. Oliphant?' said Rush, holding on to Isaac. "'Hamlet. He's very gentle.' "'What's the cat's name?' asked Randy. "'Butter, on account of her colour. "'Are the boats ours, too? Yours, I mean,' asked Oliver. "'Yes, the boats are ours, too. You must learn to sail this summer.' She said it as if she were telling them they must learn Latin declensions or something. "'Boy!' cried Oliver, flinging open the door of the motor and tumbling out on the grass. 
Isaac tumbled out after him, barking joyously, and careening in mad enthusiastic circles around the stately hamlet. A man in blue denim came to help carry luggage. His sleeves were rolled up, and there was a Chinese dragon tattooed on one forearm. "'This is Wilkins,' said Mrs. Oliphant, introducing them. "'And, Wilkins, these are Mona and Randy and Rush and Oliver. You must teach them how to sail, pull them out of the water when they start to drown, and keep them out of mischief generally.' "'Yes, am Mrs. O. I'd be glad to. Sure would.' Wilkins smiled and picked up the two heaviest suitcases, as if they'd been sofa cushions. The dragon on his forearm rippled over the swelling muscle, that was all. They knew they were going to like him a lot. "'Is that what he calls you, Mrs. O?' whispered Randy, as Mrs. Oliphant opened the front door. "'Yes, Wilkins has trouble with the word Oliphant. He likes all words and names to be as brief as possible. Yep, nope, okay, sure do. That's the way he likes it. So I'm called Mrs. O. The house was a good house. The living room was big with a low ceiling and a lot of things on the walls, shelves of books and statues and pictures and mirrors and French fans under glass and peacock feathers in a copper vase. Look at that, said Rush, standing still, both his arms pulled down by suitcases. He was staring at a piano. It was the real McCoy, all right, a Steinway parlor grand, black and shining as wet tar, with all its ivory keys gleaming in a sort of elegant smile. Just take a look at that, repeated Rush in a dreamy voice. You must play on it whenever you wish, Mrs. Oliphant told him comfortably. Now then, here is the dining-room, and here is the kitchen. This is Mrs. Wilkins, who does our cooking for us. She makes the best cookies you ever ate. "'Cuffy, I like this place, don't you?' said Oliver, in his clear little voice. They all laughed, and Mrs. Wilkins wiped her flowery hands on her apron and shook hands with each of them. She was sort of young, like Wilkins, with black hair and red cheeks." Then Mrs. Oliphant showed them the lighthouse. It was wonderful. You went up a corkscrew staircase, and there, one above the other, were two round rooms, each with two cots and an old-fashioned washstand. White muslin curtains flapped at the windows. Above the bedrooms was the sunroom. It was very small, with windows all the way around, and a window seat underneath that, and a bookcase under that, with old books in it. The heir of Redcliffe, Hans Brinker, Jules Verne, Massé's fairy tales, and a whole set of Louisa May Alcott written in French. "'Dibs on the room just under this one for Mona and me,' said Randy, with great presence of mind. "'I never saw such a wonderful place as this in my whole life.' "'Where's Cuffy going to sleep?' asked Oliver, suddenly anxious. "'In the house. I'll hear you if you say my name out the window,' Cuffy told him. From their tower the Melendies could see the world around them in a circle, sky with seagulls in it and nothing else except a patch of those tiny silvery clouds that looked like the scales of a carp. In one direction there was a feathering of green trees, and in the other the clear still sea, stirred only in one spot with a dappling of ripples. The waves made a silky lapping against the rocks. "'Let's go swimming,' said Rush suddenly. "'Mrs. Oliphant, could we go swimming?' And in no time at all the Melendies were hurling themselves into the water. It was colder than it looked, 
and Randy yelped like a seal. Oliver ploughed prudently to and fro at the edge with buckets of sand and water to build a fort with. Mona and Rush swam far out. "'I like Mrs. Oliphant, don't you?' Mona said. "'I like everything,' Rush told her. "'The piano and the lighthouse and what's-his-name with the dragon on his arm and the whole works.' Mona turned over and floated. The sky was blue in the middle and honey-coloured around the edges. The patch of little clouds was swimming away toward the horizon. She felt water oozing slowly up under her bathing cap behind her ears, but she didn't care because there were no more curls to worry about. Some day I'm going to be grown up, Mona thought suddenly. Going on fourteen is pretty old, after all. Pretty soon now I'll be really grown up with a permanent wave, and a lot of responsibilities like trying to earn a living and becoming a great actress. It all seemed very close and frightening suddenly, and she turned over and swam the crawl as fast as she could out to sea. Fast, with her feet churning, and her arms reaching until she had left the knowledge of her advancing age far behind. After a while she turned over and floated again, resting. The lighthouse looked like a toy, and she could hear Rush yelling, "'Come back, Mona, you dope!' When she did start back she hurried, because now beneath her she could see large dark shadows. Were they moving, coming after her? Could they be sharks? Mona flailed with her legs and reached with her arms, speeding through the water. She was enjoying her panic, because deep down in her mind she was serenely aware that the dark shadows were nothing but eelgrass. Randy walked along the rocks, exploring— her knees and elbows were lavender, her teeth chattering, and she was covered with goose-flesh, but as long as Cuffy didn't know it, Randy could ignore it. She came to a little pool full of sea-water, and kneeled down shivering to examine it. She saw barnacles and seaweed and blue-black mussels, and some tiny turreted shells that wobbled decorously across the floor of the pool. When she reached down and picked one up to find out what made it wobble, all she could see was the tip-end of a minute pink claw. She dropped it back again, and lay down on her stomach to get a better view of this small, busy world. She saw a big, crusty old villain of a crab waltzing sideways through the weeds, and some little fish that would hang motionless and nearly invisible in the water for minutes at a time, and then dart quickly as if pulled by threads. The longer she looked, the larger the world of the pool began— Oops! <laughs> the longer she looked, the larger the world of the pool became, until it was a jungle ravine full of wild beasts and sudden dangers. Rush was trying to make Isaac come swimming, but he wouldn't for a long time. He ran up and down the pier, yapping. "'Come on, boy, come on!' bellowed Rush frantically. "'Don't be a sissy!' It would be terrible to have a dog that was a sissy about the sea." Isaac ran down the pier again and back to the edge. Hamlet ambled along the pier, took one disgusted look at Isaac, and dived into the water. That was too much for Isaac. Shamed into it, he gathered himself together and plunged into the hated element, which had always meant baths to him. Oliver was scooped up from his earthworks by Cuffy and carried away to supper in the kitchen with Mrs. Wilkins. The older ones had supper on the terrace later with Mrs. Oliphant. They looked very clean with their wet hair and salt-scoured faces. A whole flock of freckles had already alighted on Randy's nose, and Rush said he thought he must be sunburned, because he could feel his back. 
"'Usually he hardly knew it was there.' "'Gee, Mrs. Wilkins, you're certainly a very fine cook,' Rush said, turning to look at her. "'This is the best blueberry pie I ever ate, and I'm kind of a connoisseur.' "'He ought to be. He once ate a whole pie and a half by himself, a whole rhubarb one and half of an apple one. At eleven o'clock in the morning he did it,' said Randy, proud of his achievement. Afterward they all went and sat in the living-room. Cuffy darned, Mrs. Oliphant knitted, and Randy held the wool for her. Hamlet and Isaac lay side by side on the rug, stretched out flat without even the flicker of a paw, in the manner of dogs who are exhausted by all the important barking and running they have done during the day. Mona had found a wonderful new book called Under Two Flags, and she was reading it. As for Rush, he cast so many longing glances at the piano that Mrs. Oliphant finally said, "'Well, why in the world don't you go and play us something?' So Rush did. It was a swell piano with a tone like purple velvet. First he played the Bach Chaconne, and then the Brahms Intermezzo, the one that sounds like dancing, and then, because he was showing off, he tore into the revolutionary etude, and Randy sat holding her breath, waiting for the terrible mistake he always made in the same place. But it never came. She let out her breath in a sigh of relief. "'Bravo,' said Mrs. Oliphant, picking up a stitch. "'You'll be a very good pianist some day, if you work hard.' It wasn't Randy's idea of much of a compliment. She privately thought Rush would be able to knock the spots off any pianist from Josef Hoffmann on down, but Rush seemed pleased. Now that he had demonstrated how good he was, he played all the simple things they asked for, and then Mrs. Oliphant dug out an old dog-eared book of songs, and they sang Sweet and Low, with Cuffy booming a sturdy alto, and O oh, Susanna, and Camptown Races, and Funiculi Funicula, and they finished with the Star-Spangled Banner. They all stood up to sing it, and Randy made even the dogs stand up. On this splendid note the evening ended. Mrs. Oliphant stuffed her knitting into a large crimson bag, the dogs were banished to the kitchen, and all the good knights said, "'Listen,' whispered Rush, as they entered the lighthouse, "'let's go up to the top and look out.' Tiptoeing up the corkscrew stair, they went through the boys' room, where Oliver lay asleep with the sheet kicked off, and his arms and legs flung out like the letter X, and on up through the girls' room to the little room at the top. "'It's the moon room instead of the sun room now,' Randy said. It was true. The place was flooded with the bluish radiance of moonlight. Out of doors ten thousand glittering icy flames licked at the waves, and in the sky all except the most brilliant stars were drowned in light. "'Well, here we are,' said Rush, "'thanks to you, Randy, and the ISAAC. "'You know, I think maybe I'm going to like this even better than the valley.' "'That was a swell idea of yours, Randy,' Mona told her. "'Just think, if it hadn't been for the ISAAC, "'Rush would never have found Isaac, and you wouldn't have made friends with Mrs. Oliphant, "'and we wouldn't have been here at all.' "'And you would still have been bearing the burden of those pigtails,' Rush told her. "'No, but really, it is sort of funny when you think about it. "'Everything important happened on a Saturday. "'Of course, the coal gas was really Sunday morning. "'Well, it began on a Saturday,' Randy insisted. "'We won't need a club down here,' Mona said. "'Or any allowance,' agreed Rush. "'Not with all that ocean and the boats and everything.' 
Let's keep it for fall, and then when we go back we can begin again. We might do good deeds with it, Randy said. She was so happy that she wanted to do something about it, perform a noble action, or give a present to somebody, or be good for the rest of her life. Of course, when the opportunity came, she would go down before temptation as soon as anyone else, but just now she didn't believe it. They leaned their arms on the window sill and looked at the world, so changed, so beautiful in this strange light. The water lapped and purred against the rocks, and the breeze that cooled their faces smelled of honeysuckle and salt marshes. Now it's going to be Saturday every day, all summer long, said Randy, and yawned a wide, peaceful, happy yawn. That's the end of The Saturdays by Elizabeth Enright, and now I want to read you the introduction, which I skipped before the first chapter. Let's see if I can find it. Okay, here's the introduction, written by the author in 1947, and she mentions a few things that happen in the next book, which is called The Four-Story Mistake, When the Family Moves to the Country. Introduction. Quite often I receive letters from children asking to know if the Melendies are real. Are Mona, Rush, Randy, and Oliver really alive, they ask, or were they ever? Was there once a real Cuffy or a real Isaac, or a house called The Four-Story Mistake? The answers to these questions are mixed. It must be admitted that such a family, made of flesh and blood, whom one could touch, talk to, argue with, and invite to parties, does not actually exist. Yet in other ways, as I shall try to show, each of these people is at least partly real. Once, when I was a child, I heard of a family named Melendy. I do not know how many children were in this family, or what kind of people they were, but for some reason I liked their name, and stored it away in my mind, to borrow for the four-story children, at a much later date. So they began, at least, with a real name. As I went along I borrowed other things—qualities, habits, remarks, events. I borrowed them from my children, from my own childhood, even from the dogs we have had, and from conversations and recollections of many of our friends and relatives. Mona and Randy, for instance, are partly made of things I remember about myself as a child—only the better things, of course, and things that I wish I had been, and that I would like to have had in daughters of my own. In Mona I also recognize my dearest cousin, as well as my roommate in boarding school, who was going to be an actress, and who was frequently discovered acting the part of Joan of Arc in front of the bathroom mirror. In Randy I recognize two of my long-ago best friends, as well as two of my long-ago best wishes, to be a dancer and to be an artist. In Oliver I have borrowed liberally from the things I know and remember about my sons, and from many other little boys besides. Large patches of him are invented, of course, which is also true of the others. I never knew of a boy of six, for instance, who got away with an adventure like Oliver's Saturday excursion, but on the other hand I have been intimately concerned with a boy who collected moths, just as ardently as Oliver did. The whole family was involved in this hobby of his. All of us went through the grief of caterpillars lost, strayed, or perished— through the inconvenience of cocoons hung up in the wrong places, and the foragings by flashlight for special leaves to feed ravenous larvae, while the forgetful collector slept in deepest calm. Reminders of my son's characters also occur in that of Rush, though not so often as in the case of Oliver. In Rush I trace memories of other boys I knew. 
one who played the piano marvelously well, and one who was a curly-haired rascal with a large vocabulary and a propensity for getting into and neatly out of trouble. Cuffy is someone I knew when I was five years old, and someone else I knew when I was twelve. One of them was rather cross, the other very gentle. Both of them were fat people, elderly, and, in their different ways, knew how to love children so that they felt comfortable and cosy. Father is composed of several fathers of my acquaintance, all of them kind and hard-working, and deeply interested in their children. As for Isaac, except for the fact that he is a male and not pure-blooded, he is exactly like our own fat, freckled cocker spaniel, who was gloriously won in a raffle by the father in our family. The house, which is called the four-story mistake, is made out of several queer old interesting houses that I have seen, and is set in the kind of country which I have enjoyed the most, country with plenty of woods, hills, streams, and valleys. Wishing has played a large part in these stories, too, as you can see. The melodies have and do all the things I would have liked to have and do as a child. There are plenty of them, for one thing, and I was an only child. They live in the country all year round for another— and I lived in the city for most of it. They discovered a secret room, built a treehouse, found a diamond, escaped from dangers, effected rescues, gave elaborate theatrical performances at the drop of a hat, got lost, and did many other striking things, all of which I would have liked to do. So the melodies you see are a mixture. They are made out of wishes and memory and fancy. This, I am sure, is what all the characters in books are made of, yet while I like writing a Oops. Yet, while I was writing about these children, they often seemed to me like people that I knew, and when you are reading the stories of their trials and adventures, I hope that you, too, will sometimes feel that they are real. Elizabeth Enright, 1947 And now I just have to pick another book for my podcast, and I will talk to you later.